Thank you for listening to this recording from Grace Evangelical Church. We'd like to apologize for the quality of the audio and like to warn you that the sermon cuts off at 24 minutes. You still, however, may wish to listen to the first 24 minutes. Apologies. All right, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today. Um, Paul, as we've seen over the weeks, has been is very upbeat about his sense of partnership in the gospel with the Christians at Philippi, and that arises out of their common experience of God's grace. And that makes Paul all the more concerned to address what he sees to be the biggest threat to the well-being of the church in Philippi. And it's interesting that he doesn't see the threat coming from uh, external enemies or persecution. Those are real. The biggest threat to the well-being of the church in Philippi is, as Paul has sort of helped to see, failing to be shaped by the mind of Christ. You remember back in chapter 2, we saw the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verses 5 through to 11, where, where Paul says, um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The biggest threat to any church family is failing to have the mind of Christ. For Paul, there was only two options. Either either they would continue to be shaped by their old, pre-Christian, sinful, distorted sense of self, and Paul said in the earlier chapters, he tells us how that would be, that would present, how that would be marked. That would be marked by uh, rivalry, by selfish ambition, uh, by a lack of concern for righteousness, by an absence of true humility, uh, an absence of maturity, uh, and an absence of any sense of joy and unity. That's one option facing the church. On the other hand, they would be shaped, well, the other option is they'd be shaped from the inside out by the mind of Christ. And that would be marked by a personal delight in Christ overflowing into a conscious, determined struggle to be as Christ to one another. Two options. Health and uh, lack of health. (laughs) And Paul continues that theme, I believe, into chapter 4. Helping them to see, you see, remember in chapter, uh, verse 1, Dave dealt with last week, to, last week, talked about, stand firm thus in the Lord. So in chapter 4, Paul's helping them see what standing firm with the mind of Christ will look like in response to tensions and frustrations of personal conflict, which is what he leads with into this next section of verses. And in this context of chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, Paul uses three main imperative or three command words. He uses other ones, but the three main ones. So verse 4, he commands the attitude. Imagine that, commanding an attitude of habitual rejoicing in the Lord. And then verses 8 and 9, he commands that they fill their minds with the good things, the attitude of worship. And sandwiched in between those two commands, in verse 6, there's the command, do not be anxious about anything. 
And the idea of anxiety or being anxious has the idea of being worried or fearful or uncertain or, or tortured in mind. And so I think Paul's picking up a play between the two sorts of minds that we'll be controlled by, either the anxious mind or the mind of Christ. See, conflict, and I'll say, show you a bit more of this in a minute, conflict chokes out the ability to rejoice. When, when a church or people are in conflict, they're not going to be rejoicing. Why not? Because conflict chokes out the Christ-shaped mind. And what are we left with when the Christ-shaped mind is choked out? Well, it leaves us with the anxiety-shaped mind, which robs us of our ability to worship and express unity and peace, enjoy peace. Anxiety is a huge issue in our society. Psychologists now regularly describe anxiety in our society as an epidemic. At its most severe, it's uh, described as a whole range of mental illnesses. And at the other end of the scale, uh, we all experience anxiety to some degree. Anxiety or stress response from time to time. Perhaps we worry about going to a new school, or perhaps we worry about starting a new job, or or, uh, joining a new soccer team, or perhaps we're worried about some health issue, and so on and so forth. So we all all experience a degree of stress or anxiety sometime or other. It's a huge issue in society. At either extreme, whether the really severe extreme of mental health issue or just the sort of ad hoc thing we, we all experience, at either extreme, anxiety will present with physical psychological and behavioral responses from from the very ordinary of tightness in the chest and stomach uh, to to perhaps fear and and a desire to sort of take off and flee, withdraw, to the more severe levels of being totally debilitated so a person's unable to function properly or normally. And there's so much in our society that actually creates anxiety, I believe. So, for instance, we're told repeatedly, um, it's a mantra of our culture now, that we can be and do whatever we want to be and do. And that's got to create massive anxiety for people because the actual reality of life says we can't actually achieve that. We're told we should be doing that, but our actual experience of life opens up this massive gap, which then leaves us wondering, well, what's wrong with me? That lack of meaning and purpose causes massive anxiety, I believe. Uh, we don't have meaning and purpose in our, our, in our culture. How, how do I fit into this world? What is my reason for existing? Uh, what is the good life? Is my experience of life even worthwhile on the scale of things? And relationships cause heaps of anxiety. Am I loved? Am I secure? Am I accepted for what I am? Am I just being used now only to be discarded later? Will the relationship last? Will I be unfriended? Perish the thought. Will I be rejected? Will I be replaced? 
Am I being treated fairly and appreciated? Any one of those will cause anxiety. All of them together can be overwhelming. And social media platforms, well, they've created their own level of anxiety. Uh, in the young and not so young, uh, crippled with anxiety, with a condition known as FOMO. You say, you didn't think I knew these things, did you? <laughs> My researcher does good work. Uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. Missing out on the experiences that others might be having, or are having, supposedly. Fear of missing out on being included on what others are experiencing or sharing. And young people, and not so young people, are being crippled by that. Anxiety is a huge issue. So let's jump into the text and see what Paul has to say about anxiety and, and, and responding to it. So we get these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, our case study, I'm going to suggest this morning, in resetting the mind of Christ. So it's very simple. If you don't hear anything else this morning, just, just hear this sentence. Paul's solution to conflict and anxiety is very simple. Reset the mind of Christ. Reset the mind of Christ. And with that, rejoicing, unity, a deep inner peace, delight in the Lord will be the inevitable outcome. Paul leads into this section, as I said before, by focusing on two women looked, locked in conflict. Now, it's very interesting that Paul doesn't actually give us the detail of that conflict. Presumably, that means it's not important. What is important to Paul is that the conflict has resulted in a loss of ability to fellowship together for these two women. That's the real issue for Paul. Now, it's not hard to imagine what was happening in the hearts of these two women. Regardless of who was right and wrong, and remember, we're not told that, regardless of who was right and wrong, as Christian women, in their hearts, they would both have been in a state of anxiety, no doubt. A state of restlessness, fear, uncertainty, all the stuff that comes with conflict. Relationships were at stake. All those things that would rob them of joy at pretty well every point in their life. Most likely, because we know what we do in conflict, most likely each of these ladies would have thought, genuinely thought in their heart, that what they were longing for was only fairness and justice to prevail. If only I can get fairness and justice, then this will be the solution to the conflict. And everything will turn to normal. But here's a thought. Perhaps what they really craved, we just didn't recognize it, perhaps what they really craved was a removal of their anxiety. A restoration of the peace and joy in their hearts, the quietness of mind that they once experienced and which they assumed would come as a result of getting justice. And being vindicated. Now I know what I'm talking about in this area. Believe me. But I also know that the reality is that justice and vindication 
fail to restore relationships and fail to restore peace in our hearts of itself. Yep, they smooth things over on the outside and after a fashion we can say things are restored. But I'll tell you what, sourness and bitterness will continue to eat us away on the inside and kill off any ability to express joy or experience unity and peace. And no doubt their conflict was just oozing out with tentacles grabbing others in the church family. Whether that grab was through people just observing two outstanding Christian women whose previously strong relationship is now just crumbling before their eyes, that's enough to cause anxiety across a church family, isn't it? Or whether it's a bit more direct and there was some pressure from either one or both of these women to, 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 to form sides and form factions. You know, join me, I'm the one that's in the right here. You need to hear this, but what she did to me. Anxiety will spread across the church family. And into that scenario, Paul presents an alternative model, a gospel-shaped model, a mind-of-Christ-shaped model, which would restore peace, joy, and unity to the whole church family. Given that it had been squeezed out of gospel shape by conflict. And that's what conflict does. Squeezes out of gospel shape. So, some thoughts as to what that model looks like. The first one is, Paul's really saying to these people, don't accept broken fellowship and relationship as just the way it is. Verse 2, Paul's language reveals the urgency of action. I entreat, I plead, I beg with you two women, names them each individually, I beg you, agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask, true compa- I also ask you, true companion, help these women. Help them. Paul understands that this conflict, while it exists in the church family, is an immediate and present threat to unity, partnership in the gospel, and joy. Reverse it, and all those things will be restored. Simple equation. Hard to do. Simple equation. And Paul's picking up here that their, their external disagreement is driven by internal attitudes and desires and thinking, which is, again, contrary to the mind of Christ. They need to restore practically the mind of Christ. That means, that's what he's talking about when he says agree in the Lord. It doesn't mean they can no longer have a difference of opinion, but they have to find a way to operate on that difference of opinion that restores practically the mind of Christ and brings the mind of Christ into that discussion. 
And among other things, that will involve bringing the grace of Christ that they've experienced individually to their dispute. And notice verse 3. Paul's not in the least bit embarrassed by these women. It's not as if they're an embarrassment or a nuisance to him. He speaks so highly of them. It's, it's actually his concern is quite the opposite of embarrassment. His concern for them is the same concern he expressed for himself back in chapter three, uh, 2, verse 16. He doesn't want them to run or labor in vain. He describes them as companion, uh, uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Here's the rub. Paul would not overlook or simply accept this conflict as an unfortunate background private dispute which was easily offset by the really good gospel ministry these two women were involved in over here. He wouldn't play that game. He wouldn't do the trade-off. Their names are in the book of life, says Paul. What's the book of life? Well, among other things, I'm just going to paraphrase it and say something like this. It's God's official register of those being renewed by God's Spirit for God's glory. Why would Paul say that? Well, it's this. The credibility of their testimony as Christians, as Christian women, the credibility of their ministry would be undermined if, on the one hand, they were proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation and unity in Christ while living easily with broken relationships within the church. Second point. Recognize and welcome the role other believers in the church have, in the church family have to play. Verse 3. Paul actually deploys the resources of the pastor, Timothy. That's the urgency. Help these ladies find a way through this dispute back to the mind of Christ. You is singular in verse 3, so clearly it's a reference to Timothy. But verse 1, if you go back to verse 1 and then the verses after verse 4 and onwards, the, the pronouns are plural. So I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, that, that while Timothy was going to take the lead in this as a matter of first urgency for the church family, that Paul was suggesting that the whole church family has a, has a role to play in the dispute of these two women and seeking a resolution of that dispute. How would that be? Well, because the whole church family then has a, an opportunity and indeed a responsibility to model the mind of Christ 
to these two women who are struggling to have the mind of Christ at that particular time. How might that happen? Well, it would, the mind of Christ would be seen as others in the congregation refuse to take sides, knowing that taking sides would create more rivalry and division. The mind of Christ would, would urge them to move towards each other, constrained by the love of Christ, rather than avoid each other, or simply gossip about the problem with each other. The mind of Christ would be praying for generosity of spirit in these two ladies, preparedness to admit wrong, preparedness to seek forgiveness, preparedness to offer forgiveness, and for new desire to be as Christ to one another. The mind of Christ would urge people to speak God's word to them as appropriate, which in fact is just speaking the mind of Christ to them, speaking verbally the mind of Christ that they've sort of got squeezed away from at this particular time, helping them identify and move away from the old default, distorted, sinful mind. The third thing Paul urges them to do then is just to go back to basics. Verse 4, consciously rejoice. That, I've actually used that word to, to try and highlight it like that. Conscious, consciously rejoice yourself by reflecting on who you are and what you have in Christ. Now this is a command. It's not an optional extra for, for Christians. It's a command which we need to action. So how do we do that? Well, I'm playing on the word mind again, so we need to remind ourselves, that is, remind, remind yourself in a situation of conflict that you're more sinful than you could ever understand, more loved than you will ever comprehend, saved by grace, just like the person who you think has failed you and wounded you. Or who's annoying you. Remind yourself that the Lord is working in each of you to bring you to maturity. That He wants in each of you to produce the fruit of righteousness. That this conflict is an opportunity to produce the fruit of righteousness. Remind yourself that joy is not about how we feel and having hassle-free circumstances and living, but about knowing that we are totally loved and totally secure in Christ and therefore free to reach out to others at great personal cost to ourselves as the mind of Christ led Christ to do. Verse 5. Be known for your reasonableness. That's a strange little verse in there, isn't it? Be known for your reasonableness. I've thought about that a long time over the last two or three weeks. And I've got there a sort of sub-point leading of it. Be known as a peacemaker rather than a brawler. So what is it to be reasonable in a situation of conflict? 
How will the mind of Christ make us reasonable as opposed to being unreasonable? And unreasonable is just hard to deal with, isn't it? When people are being unreasonable, they're just impossible to engage with. So what will, how will the mind of Christ make us reasonable? Perhaps a bit like this. Perhaps Paul's saying, look, be known as the person who is quick to take ownership in your part of the conflict. Be known as the person who is quick to move towards the one who has wronged you. Thank you for listening to this recording from Grace Evangelical Church. We'd like to apologize for the quality of the audio and like to warn you that the sermon cuts off at 24 minutes. You still, however, may wish to listen to the first 24 minutes. Apologies.